Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, and my name is Valerie St. Rossi. Today, I'm very pleased to be speaking with Kelly Dietz about her book, Bound to the Fire, How Virginia's Enslaved Cooks Helped Invent American Cuisine. This was published by the University Press of Kentucky in 2017. Kelly, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thank you for having me. Your book is a window into the South at the height of slavery, but you chose an unexpected path to tell this story. You chose the kitchen. Can you begin by telling us what brought you to this choice? Absolutely. So a couple of things brought me to this. Um, I would think, you know, sort of more centrally, I have a training in African American studies, archaeology, slavery in the South, but I was a professional chef for 10 years. And so when I started my formal studies at the College of William & Mary as an undergrad, and then later at UC Berkeley for my doctorate, I found myself wanting to study enslavement, wanting to bring these stories to life. And it was through a series of visits to plantation museums, where because of my formal background cooking, I was drawn to these buildings that usually stood next to the main house that were empty, you know, not marked in any way. And I could just imagine all the kinds of energy that was in there, whether it was cooking, whether it was poisoning, whether it was the vibrancy of the meals and the energy that was in there. And I felt like the kitchen as a sort of crossroads of American history the cultural crossroads of the white world of the plantation house and the black world of the enslaved community came into contact with one another. And I think that we see that food has played a very important role in cultural connections throughout the the world's history. And I felt like this is something that was worth pursuing. In other words, when you would visit a plantation, the building that was the kitchen was unmarked, undeveloped, and left left abandoned is that what is that what you saw yeah yeah, some, I mean, occasionally you'll see them interpreted. There's definitely some, you know, plantation museums like Montpelier, Monticello, et cetera, that have these kitchens furnished and their signage around. Um, but a lot of plantations that you go to that are not the mainstream plantations, the presidential homes, have these buildings standing, but they have no interpretation. And these are the kinds of plantations as well that in the 19-teens and 20s and 30s made a very explicit effort to knock down all of their slave quarters as a sort of, you know, trying to erase the shame of their past. And, you know, these kitchen buildings were built very similarly to and in construction style as the main house. So they also survived because they were physically able to survive. They were part of the the white planter sort of showcase of their plantation. So they were able to survive both because they were part of this landscape. They sort of were connected to the, the main house, but they also were made of better materials. Can you tell us about the kitchen as a building? Absolutely. So these kitchens were moved outside uh, in Virginia and most of the South on the larger plantations. And I get into arguments with this, with 
this about people a lot of, a lot of times when, you know, people say, oh, but I know a plantation where the kitchen is inside and it's from the 18th, 19th century. But what you see happening is you see kitchens being moved outside when these larger plantation homes in Virginia start getting women uh, shipped over from, from Europe. So these white ladies come over, they start setting up these homes in the late 1600s. And you see this change in the landscape. You see areas that used to be occupied by indentured servants, whether they be black or white, some enslaved laborers and the white folks being split up. And this correlates perfectly with the ideas of race and the the birth of white supremacy. And so these buildings uh, became these sort of important stages where black people, enslaved folks, were having to be working in these spaces to both separate them from the inside of the house, but also, you know, you'll go to these museums and you'll you'll hear these funny stories about how the kitchen was moved outside because of the smell and because of the fire. But, you know, that's problematic because if you think about these big homes during these, you know, the 18th and 19th century, every single bedroom had a hearth in it of one, you know, a fireplace. I mean, they had fireplaces in the nurseries. So that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And if you also think about the smell of the people, right, people were filthy, they didn't bathe, but once or twice a year. So it's really hard to sort of back up this idea that somehow that the goose that was being roasted was going to smell worse than your husband's feet. Such an interesting insight. Um, Could you describe physically the kitchen building? Absolutely. So they're they're going to typically be, you know, sort of uh, smaller versions of the large house. If the big plantation house is brick, the kitchen is probably going to be brick and so forth. Um, they were typically separated um, by a walkway of, of a sort, whether it be underground that came later, and I can talk about that in a little bit, um, or just through a pathway that was above ground. And they typically were in a space where, you know, the windows were all facing the big house and it sort of created a, a way in which, you know, it sort of sent this sort of, uh, you know, feeling of being watched in the kitchen the whole time because things like poisoning and, you know, um, not working were things that were punishable by abuse, by death. And that was something that the, the people in the big house, the white folks, the mistress who ran the house was always thinking about. And so these buildings typically, <clears throat> excuse me, um, stood about 16 feet or so uh, wide and they stood and they had a big hearth in there. Some of them have a fireplace that's on both sides They have a chimney in the middle, in which case um, one side of the kitchen building might've been a laundry and the other half would have been for food. Some of them are just kitchens where the lodging for the enslaved folks would be upstairs um, in a sort of loft area. It just depends on the the ways in which that they were built, but they were, they were spaces in which these enslaved people had to live and work 24 hours a day. So were the enslaved cooks often also the enslaved laundress? Sometimes. I found this more often at medium to smaller plantations. And the focus of my work is really the larger plantations that were sort of the, you know, the well-known homes where people would come from all over the world to eat and to feast. And so, you know, those sorts of homes, the large homes that I focused on had an enslaved cook and possibly an enslaved assistant and apprentices and everything else. The medium-sized, the smaller ones had somebody that might have been the, the nanny, the maid the cook, the launderer, etc. So your description of uh, the plantations as being a destination for international visitors, how did that come about? 
Well, Virginia was a colony of England in the beginning, right? So you've got, you know, heads of states, you know, from from Britain, from anywhere else coming to sort of visit the colony to see the land, the plantations, the wealth that it was creating in the in the large sort of Atlantic world of the time period. And then as, you know, we became our own nation in the 1770s and America was born as it is now, it became a place that, you know, was sort of the fascination of a lot of other people as well. And you have, you know, Thomas Jefferson going to France, you know, and and people sort of traveling around representing America in this new light as this new, uh, you know, new country that was birthed out of this colony. And, you know, people were traveling all over the Atlantic, you know, diplomats, ambassadors, I mean, people were traveling on boats all over the place. And if you think about the Atlantic world, the space of the Atlantic Ocean during the, you know, all the way back to the excuse me, starting even in the 16th century, but definitely the 17th, 18th and 19th century, it was this place of mass transportation, whether it be goods, whether it be enslaved folks who were captured in in West Africa and enslaved in the Americas, or whether it be, you know, diplomats or people that are just traveling around to, you know, to, to participate in political talks or, you know, spread democracy, those kinds of things. And, you know, Virginia became known for this place of not just hospitality, but feasting and food and abundance. And when you think about American food, the way that it is is now, it's very much attached to this notion of this early republic, you know, eating and having the money to show off their wealth through food. You mentioned in your book, the fluorescence of luxury in Virginia, uh, 1740 to 1765. So this is, uh, first of all, the result of the success of the plantations as economic entities, correct? Yes. And uh, was this also connected to the interest in starting to serve a different kind of food in Virginia, a food in the French style, which you write about as well? Right, right. And the the change in the ways in which Americans ate, I think, is really, really fascinating. So, you know, when you think about the Jamestown colony, for instance, I mean, they literally ate each other at one point because they were starving. And so, you know, American food and food generally went from something that, you know, it was to eat to live versus to live to eat. And this is for the elites, right? So by the 1700s, the 18th century, you see these dining rooms being built. You see, you know, the most fancy of, of China coming over, you know, all sorts of gorgeous ceramics from Europe, you know, hand-painted things, uh, textiles are being traded like crazy across the Atlantic. People are dressing up their homes sort of in in a model of a sort of, you know, um, European palace sort of, you know, set. And so you've got the curtains, you've got the the gilded, uh, you know, uh, sort of lanterns and things like that. And you really have this sort of set to then have the food lay upon that. And, you know, when you entertain people, even in 2018, one of the things that you think about is what you're going to serve them. And so in the beginning, you know, it was more of just sort of eating to live. And then by the 18th century, with all these women coming over, trying to create and recreate the sort of European sophistication in food, you start seeing people trying to then, you know, um, sort of emulate Europeans' uh, fare, you know, their food. And then, of course, Jefferson is really well known for bringing French food to the sort of forefront of this space in Virginia, 
with his trips to, to Paris back and forth. And, you know, you have this, you have different, you know, you have different cookbooks coming over from Europe. You've got, of course, the Mary Randolph book here in Virginia. But you also have, you know, people like James Hemings being sent over to learn French cuisine, an enslaved cook of Thomas Jefferson's being sent over to learn French you know, French cooking styles and then bringing it back. And, you know, French food was very different than what we were eating over here at the time. And it, it brought this sort of sophistication, you know, a kind of um, additional layer of, of, of technique and everything else at the table. And it's really important to also note, this is a big part of my book, but, you know, the people that were cooking this food were, were enslaved Africans and African-Americans. And you see their, their influence in the cuisine very, very strongly in the 18th century. And by the 19th century, it's actually written into cookbooks by, you know, their enslavers, you know, they're writing down recipes of pepper pot, of okra stew, you know, gumbo, um, jambalaya, which is a cousin of jollof rice from West Africa. And you have these kinds of these kinds of dishes that are being born out of that crossroads that I talked about in the beginning. So this idea that, you know, these European settlers or colonists were coming over here and they were wanting food that reminded them of home. Similarly, the, the captured Africans and the enslaved African-Americans that were here were also wanting something of home. So whether you were in the slave quarter and you were actually cooking things that resembled it more strongly or making those similar dishes for your enslaver, those foods made their way on that table and became very much a part of not only Virginian food, but Southern food and American food as a whole. Would you say that Virginia was the center for this uh, explosion of food style advanced food style in the American South. And maybe it has to do with two very famous Virginians, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson as well. Absolutely. So, you know, I've, I've gotten into this argument as well. And I think that there's, you know, there's very, a lot of very good information and, and sort of evidence that these kinds of food explosions were happening absolutely in places like New Orleans. You know, that's, that's a sort of a given. You've got all those different cultural mixes, you know, the, the sort of borders being traded back and forth, the Haitians coming over. I mean, that was definitely a hub of, of transforming American food. But you see this, you know, uh, as well in Virginia. And since Virginia was the first colony, successful English colony in America. And you've got these two presidents that put food and not only food, but French food and, and sophisticated food on their dinner tables and, and sort of, and the food being served there made its way into letters across the Atlantic and people knew about feasting in Virginia. And, you know, you absolutely see this with James Hemings, who was, you know, taught the French style. He came back and, you know, negotiated his emancipation with Jefferson by teaching his brother how to cook in the style. And he was able to emancipate and then, you know, go on. And he sadly, he ended up dying uh, very shortly after. But then you have someone like Hercules, who I would argue uh, is the first celebrity chef in America. And Hercules was George Washington's enslaved chef. He was purchased by Washington when he was 16 years old. And he was brought to Mount Vernon as a young child or as a young man. And he was brought out there and he was working in the house and doing sort of things like that. Um, he ended up getting married to a woman named Alice, who was a seamstress out Mount Vernon. And when Washington moved up to Philadelphia, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1790 to move into the White House to run this, this brand new country, he needed to have 
an enslaved person or, you know, enslaved people to support this household. It was, you know, he was a Southerner. This is a way of life for Washington. So he ended up bringing a, a handful of folks up, including Chef Hercules, who very quickly uh, became incredibly famous in Philadelphia. And Philadelphia is a very interesting place during this period. We're talking about the 1790s. Philadelphia, um, a state that had just recently, before they, they arrived, passed the Gradual Emancipation Act, which said that if you have enslaved people in bondage in the state of Pennsylvania, that they will be freed after 30 days. I'm sorry, excuse me, six months. <clears throat> and so you have every sick, and, and so Washington found out about this, and somehow he didn't know this law. And he finds out about this after he's on his way up there with all of these enslaved folks that he was going to rely on for supporting his household and cooking all the food. And so Washington brings these folks up there. And, you know, Philadelphia had this big, rich, vibrant, free black community. So you have these enslaved folks coming from a plantation in Virginia, now living living and working in a city that has a large free black population. It has is a port city. There's people coming from all over the world, including places that had long since freed their enslaved folks, interacting with, with them at the market. You know, Hercules is, is, I think, exceptional in this case because there are, there are accounts of him you know, running his kitchen like you would think of as a Gordon Ramsay, you know, like with an iron fist. Everything was executed to perfection. Um, there's an account of him wearing this wonderful silk, blue silk, blue and white silk outfit with a coat. And he had a watch chain and he had a gold cane and a cocked hat. And he would walk down Market Street in Philadelphia and white men would bow to him in the street because he was so well respected. And this is an enslaved man from Virginia. Now, Washington, every five months and 20 some odd days, would take all of his enslaved folks, put them on a wagon or on horseback, send them back to touch Virginia soil. And he did that over and over again to uh, prevent them from being becoming free. And that's something, go ahead, blows my mind. Were his slaves aware of what he was doing to them? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people talked. And if you were an enslaved person, person working inside of a house, especially in a place like Philadelphia, you're going to be interacting with a lot of people who are abolitionists, who know the law. Um, and I can imagine, right, that Hercules, with his well-known cooking skills, was probably proposed to by several guests in Washington's dining room. I guarantee it. He was so well-known. And, you know, he ended up escaping on Washington's birthday and seven, <clears throat> excuse me, 1797, you know, Washington wakes up and this is after he had spent years pushing him back and forth, you know, back and forth from Mount Vernon to Philadelphia. And he finally sent him back for good. And in November 1796, there's a record of Hercules shoveling manure at Mount Vernon. So you have this man who, you know, really tasted uh, bits of freedom and pride and joy in Philadelphia, knowing that it was right there. Also knowing people that could get him out of his enslavement that was held on him by, by Washington. And so you have this sort of grand moment when Washington wakes up on his birthday a few months after with this, this sort of recollection of Hercules shoveling manure he wakes up and his cherished Hercules is gone. And for all the letters that you read of Washington writing back and forth to different people trying to find his beloved Hercules, I find it a bit, um, I don't know, 
justified that and sort of beautiful, right? That Hercules wakes up and gives him the ultimate birthday present and gets his own freedom from the person who enslaved him for his almost his entire life. Yes, he gives him the ultimate something. And <laughs> And three cheers for Hercules. Oh, three and a, a bunch more. Agreed. Agreed. I would like to uh, add into this discussion of uh, the slaves being exposed to Philadelphia's open city environment that uh, – The transatlantic slave trade was abolished in 1808. And after that point, Southern plantations were beginning to become subjected to a different kind of scrutiny. And even some of the visitors, among them uh, was Frederick Olmsted, the architect of New York City's two famous parks, Central Park and Prospect Park, he was a visitor, and he wrote about being a guest in a plantation at the table. Now, I would like you to tell us now about what the enslaved cook had to learn, had to become, had to negotiate in their role as the producer, first of all, as food for the family uh, that enslaved them, and also as food for the international guests, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, the training that these enslaved cooks had varied, of course, from plantation to plantation, as anything sort of goes um, even now, you know, house to house, restaurant to restaurant, you get a different kind of training. But what I've found is that, you know, a lot of them sort of taught each other. So you have this first generation of these sort of white ladies coming over from from Europe. Um, They're bringing their own kind of cooking style, their cookbooks, their recipes. And then there's that first sort of wave of indentured and enslaved cooks working in these homes. Very quickly after, uh, the cooks start training themselves. You know, it becomes very... uh, very much a, a sort of inside training system. And the, the mistresses are sort of, you know, they carry the keys, they come down, they lock the unlock the sugar and the, the butter and the spices. Um, they might, you know, request some things or, or tell the enslaved cook that there'll be a dinner party coming up and have a little hand in planning that. But when it came down to actually cooking and, you know, even planning the menu, I, I would say to some extent, um, and executing the food uh, with perfection and with, with high skill, it was these enslaved slave cooks uh, that not only did it, but taught each other how to do it. They recruited people sometimes from the field quarters to come up and learn how to be a cook in the big house. And it it carried with it a, a lot of sort of very unique um, burdens that enslaved cooks had. You know, they had to pretty much work 24 hours a day. You know, if, if you were 
a traveler like Olmsted or anyone, you know, the Carters from Carters Grove. I mean, if you traveled weeks in a carriage, uh, you know, you put your your family or your enslaved uh, driver or coachman and your nanny would load up your children. Um, they would pack your things for you and you would get on a carriage and arrive to say somewhere like Stratford Hall and um, Robert E. Lee's birthplace, the, birth of the, the house of the Lees where I currently work. You would show up sometimes at, you know, midnight at two in the morning. And, you know, you could be some guy on a horseback who's traveling to see their brother and they're going to show up at maybe three, four in the morning. It didn't matter what time you showed up. That enslaved cook had to wake up. There were bell systems put in these homes and you would be, you know, uh, awakened at any hour of the night. And you didn't have to just wake up and open the door. You had to wake up and give whatever that person needed, whether it was, you know, some liquor, whether it was hot biscuits, whether it was a quick oyster stew, which there's no such thing of, Um, you know, so they were really at the beck and call of any free person that walked onto that landscape, no matter what time it was. And with all of this, um, they were able to not have to work outside the same as the, the folks in the field did. But, you know, kitchen work, anyone that's ever worked in a kitchen knows how hard it is on your body and how exhausting it is. Here, here. I mean, it is brutal. You know, I have back problems because of my 10 years in the kitchen. And if you can imagine, not only, you know, I complain about that cooking on a wolf range, you know, these folks were cooking in a hearth, bending down, you know, a backbreaking work, lifting, I mean, a lot of times they were butchering their own meats. They were lifting huge chunks of meat. They were lifting cast iron pots full of water and soups. And, you know, I mean, the work there was excruciating. And moreover, you know, you're cooking with fire. The ways in which you tested an oven to make sure it was ready to go is you'd put your arm in and if it burned you, it was ready. So you can imagine if you have to burn yourself to make those biscuits and you make biscuits every day, you're going to have a lot of, of scars, physical and emotional scars on you from doing this kind of work. Um, in all of this, there was a little bit of what I call sort of soft power within their relationship with their enslavers. And this came with their ability to really send shockwaves of fear into their enslavers. Because when you want to poison somebody during this time, you know, you didn't run up to them with a hypodermic needle, you know, this is before all of this. Um, you would simply put some, some arsenic or some poison nightshade in their milk and call it a day. And, you know, poisonings were something that you saw people being accused of um, constantly. And sometimes they got off. They weren't always convicted of poisoning, but it was something, even just having a trial in your city, in your county, in your state, in your region, sent shockwaves throughout the South. And so you've got these trials happening with these poisoning accounts. And a lot of times after things like the Nat Turner Rebellion, you have got these white ladies in these plantations, I mean, flipping out, writing each other. I'm afraid I'm going to get poisoned. I'm not sure if we can have a dinner party. You know, we might all die. And, you know, that kind of of soft power, the ability to strike fear like no one else can into your enslaver, I would imagine gave them a little bit of flexibility in some things. And moreover, you want your food to be good. And so there's evidence as well that I found that's in my book of, you know, people, enslaved cooks um, becoming sick and not feeling well and their enslaver not saying, okay, you still have to cook because if they cooked something poor and their guests saw it, it reflected really poorly on them. And so they were able 
to, you know, sometimes fake illness, um, to sort of get around working in ways that you just couldn't do if you were a butler or somebody in the field. I see. Now, the Nat Turner Rebellion was in 1831, and it was a failed rebellion. And following that event, it it was deemed illegal for slaves to read or write. Right. However, enslaved cooks did learn to read and did learn to do math. Yes, absolutely. And that's something, you know, anyone also that, that has ever cooked, I, you know, fractions come really easy to me. Um, when it comes to algebra and things like that, I could care less. But there's certain kinds of math that you just learn when you cook. And that was something that was not only important for them to know, but it was essential for them cooking things to follow recipes. I mean, the recipes back then were a handful of this and a, you know, a jar of that, but you still had to measure. You had to time things. You had to really pay attention and you had to multitask. And multitask Asking is something that takes a lot of intelligence. It really does to get things all done, executed at the same exact time. And that's something that all of these cooks were able to do uh, without question. And, you know, absolutely, as far as the reading goes, you know, there's evidence of, of a lot of enslaved folks learning how to read just some basics. You know, I'm an archaeologist as well. And, you know, continually archaeologists find slate pencils on uh, slave quarter sites. And it shows that, you know, there could be a law, but, you know, people break laws all the time. And when it comes to something as important as being literate, it was something that people risked their lives to be able to do. And, you know, enslaved cooks were taught to read at a higher rate because they had to read recipes and it was a benefit to their enslavers to have them at least somewhat literate. As I was listening to you talking about, uh, fear of being poisoned by the enslaved cooks. I was wondering whether this was uh, perhaps the plantation owners beginning to react to the fact that being slaveholders was now uh, subject to international scrutiny and that their rock solid standing was starting to be slightly undermined. Absolutely. So, you know, after So yeah. they needed to look at look for something to uh be able to legitimately accuse the people who fed them. Right. Right. They needed a legitimate um reason to be a, a slave holder with authority, right. ultimate authority. Abs Is that so? Yeah, I would say absolutely. And you also see during this period, especially after Nat Turner's Rebellion, and, you know, you can't really – the South at that point couldn't say that, that enslaved folks were happy. The whole sort of um, – anti-abolitionist, happy slave narrative wasn't working too well. And that's actually funny enough, right when sort of the iconography and the image of Aunt Jemima started popping up and really being pushed. And so you see minstrel shows, you know, uh, depicting this sort of happy slave narrative. And you see marketing. When was this? Mid-1800s. When was 
1800s. Yep. In the middle of the 1800s, you start seeing these, you know, these depictions of these sort of happy slaves from the South, you know, and this was the South sort of weapon to push back against these notions that abolitionists had and that the rest of the world had that somehow, you know, um, you know, slavery was horrible and it it was immoral and you can't be a a free society and, and help and hold people in bondage. And so, you know, they weaponized things like Aunt Jemima and really pushed it. Um, you know, minstrel shows carried it all over the world, um, marketing campaigns in the late 1800s. And this really became popular after emancipation, after the Civil War. Yeah, minstrel yeah, actually. Shows and the funny thing in, is there were also black, you know, black folks white did it as well. But you have this weird sort of cycle where you've got, um, you know, Irish folks coming over as immigrants, not getting jobs, uh, being treated poorly. And then they decide that, you know, they're going to go enter this very offensive entertainment business and black up their face and, and be, you know, act the way in which these other folks are, you know, sort of depicted as. And it was a way in which Irish folks and other immigrants that did this um, made themselves probably feel better about their own sort of horrible status in society, but it was also a way for them to live. And then you also see a lot of, you know, African-American folks having to do this as well, because, you know, the North wasn't a joyous place to be either. And a lot of them would escape slavery and, and realize that, you know, racism was a was a national problem and it had a different flavor in the South, but it wasn't some sort of oasis in the North either. This is very interesting because when you read immigration uh, histories, the Irish who came in 1840s, 1848 was the pian- uh, the potato famine, they were on the bottom of the immigration uh, pyramid. And they were right next to African-American, slaved, enslaved or free. And that there was... Uh, competition for the bottom jobs. And it's incredible that they were even competing for the minstrel show jobs. That was was something I wasn't aware of at all. I would like you to talk a little, since we're talking about, hmm, slavery is getting a bad reputation now. Early 1800s, moving toward... um, what becomes the hostilities of the Civil War. Would you tell us about how some of the famous slave owners started to uh, erase visibility of their enslaved kitchen staffs uh, while they were doing incredible entertaining, but they made the slaves disappear with architectural details. Can you describe some of those? Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the more fascinating things that I really loved digging into with this research. But you see a couple of moments in in, uh, in architectural history that things shift. And whenever things shift physically, you have to ask, you know, as a material culturist, you ask, you know, what part of the culture is making this thing transform. And so right at the Revolutionary War, we're going to back up a little bit, um, the birthing of America, right? You know, Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Everybody was talking about what it meant to be free. Now, if you are an enslaved butler or a waiter, and you are in that dining room, when these conversations are being had, whether it be by Patrick Henry or Thomas Jefferson, or 
another plantation owner who's very elite and sort of in these conversations, you're going to start to think yourself exactly, right? Like, give me liberty or give me death. What does it mean to be free? These folks knew that they were held in bondage. They knew that it was immoral. They just didn't know exactly how to get out of it. And so um, you have this kind of, of fear of not only your enslaved folks hearing these kinds of conversations, Um, But also, you know, everyone was talking about what it meant to be free. And so if you have someone, say, coming from a place in Europe where they had already abolished slavery, coming to your dinner table, you might not want to have, you know, your enslaved staff sitting there, you know, sort of in their face, Um, you know, just I mean, everybody knew that Jefferson had slaves. I mean, that's. You know, no one didn't know that. But, you know, it's very different when you want to have your guests over and you want to kind of flex, you know, the ways in which you show that off or not. So you have a few things happening in the 1780s, 90s and up to 1808. You've got things like Jefferson, you know, brought over from Europe, the dumbwaiter. And if you think about what that is, and, you know, he's got that fancy one in his fireplace, but a dumbwaiter, a piece of furniture speaks volumes about this, this moment in political history. You have a dumbwaiter put as a, you know, a multi-shelved sort of table that you can put one in between each of, of the two diners at your table. So it's for every two people, you've got a dumbwaiter in between and you put the food on there. And that then requires no enslaved butler or waiter to come into that space. You can have conversations about freedom and the beauty of it without you know, letting on to the enslaved folks that you are a complete contradiction to liberty. Um, So that's one of the things that you see happening. You also see these sorts of uh, passageways being built. And, you know, I've gotten into arguments with a lot of folks on this, but, you know, I I stand strong in my opinion that when you, when you, you using the the argument that these sort of palisades that were um, sort of, you know, bridging sort of, you know, George Washington's Mount Vernon has them. uh, Thomas Jefferson has this hidden passageway that goes to the kitchen. You see a lot of these buildings that were being built right around the closing of the transatlantic slave trade and a little bit earlier start adding these sort of, you know, um, covered passageways, whether they be on top of the ground or below the ground. And, you know, one argument that I always get is, well, it was a, you know, it was a Palladian design inspiration and they wanted to look more like the classical architecture in Europe. And then I push back because, you know, that's, that's fine, but that still has a function. Going back to what I said a moment ago is when there's something that changes in the landscape, figure out what's going on culturally, right, politically during that moment. But moreover, the thing that really, really, I think, strikes home is that a lot of these homes built underground passageways. There is nothing architecturally significant or important or beautiful about that. They literally had enslaved folks dig into the earth and carve tunnels in underground. And when you go to these plantation museums, the narrative will be that they wanted to keep the weather off of the enslaved people when they took the food into the house which is completely absurd because if you know anything about enslavement, if you know the condition of the slave quarters, the ways in which they were abused physically, emotionally, sexually for hundreds of years to think that somehow people would move the earth to keep rain from getting on their head is completely absurd. And these things mask then the flow of, of, of black bodies from inside of the house, outside of the house, and the furniture, like the dumbwaiter, allowed for this sort of politically, um, you know, a negative space to talk about these very, very important issues of American liberty. Well, this is the old narrative that is now being overturned 
at plantations as uh, intelligence is becoming part of the story. And this is part of your work. And we will talk a little about your work at the Lee home uh, in a few minutes. But I wonder if you could tell us about the whistling. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, this is actually something that I, I, I want to sort of dive into another rabbit hole and maybe write an article or something about. But a lot of these older plantation museums, and you'll, you'll get this because I've, I've heard you know, stories like this very recently. And I'm not talking about the places like Monticello and Montpelier that are actually really, you know, uh, progressive in the ways in which they're talking about slavery. I'm talking about the ones that just haven't moved out of like the 1950s. So there was a particular tour that I went on in Charles City County. And this is a very typical uh, sort of narrative that I see at these sites. But, you know, you go on the tour, you hear all about sort of the wallpaper and the decorative arts, and there's no sort of social or cultural history. Women are barely mentioned and absolutely not a word about the enslaved folks. And then at this one particular plantation, you go outside and they point to the sign and it says whistling walkway. And, you know, the story that they told um, and tell is that this, this, this sign signifies the, the idea that these cooks had to whistle while they walked from one the kitchen underground into the main house to keep them from eating the food. And this sign was definitely from the 1940s. You could tell by the font, you know, the wood, all of that. And, you know, it, it begged me to sort of push, what, what does this narrative actually mean? There's no way in the world that that's a true story. You know, whistling might have uh, signified that the enslaved folks were coming into the house if they wanted to stop talking about liberty. But even then, it doesn't make a lot of sense when these cooks were literally, you know, elbows deep in making biscuits every day. Um, you know, these people these enslaved folks had to, I mean, they were wet nursing these people's children. And so it's, you know, they were very, very uh, physically sort of um, connected to these folks. And, and the idea that somehow this cook couldn't taste the food, which is very much a part of that person's job. And it's this sort of safe little way of sort of dismissing the skills and the importance of enslaved cooks through this sign and through this narrative made me look into sort of the history of that narrative, the history of that sign. And I found out that this was a Jim Crow narrative. And, you know, there's a lot of Jim Crow narratives. We live in, in very much now in a Jim Crow narrative. If you, if you start to study slavery and you know about the ways in which these enslaved laborers, I mean, they were integral to every single uh, free. And, and I do mean, even if you didn't own slaves, you were benefiting from slavery. You were benefiting from an economy that was birthed out of enslaved labor. You were eating the literal and figurative fruits of enslaved labor. And if you were an enslaver, if you were one of those white plantation owners, you know, you absolutely relied on these folks for everything. I mean, you know, cooking, cleaning, babysitting, nursing your children, um, carrying your, your human waste out in the middle of the night, you know, cleaning your butt. I mean, they did everything. And so this idea that somehow the cook couldn't taste the food while he's walking or she's walking underground into the kitchen because, you know, it just was so unheard of speaks to the strangeness of Jim Crow laws. When you have that kind of very tight-knit and, uh, you know, white supremacist, but tight-knit community in the South, and you have Jim Crow laws saying that you cannot sit next to each other, that you cannot drink out of the same water fountain, when your child, just a couple years before, was literally nursing off of a Black nurse, it makes you wonder, right? So the Jim Crow era really 
sort of recalibrated the ways in which we think about the past. And it, it takes a lot of, of blame off of white folks who owned slaves and who enslaved people and who benefited from this because this whole separation thing reinforces white supremacist ideology and ignores the fact that black folks built this country. So in other words, the, the whistling uh, tunnels had more to do with uh, making sure that discussions of criticism of slavery and freedom uh, activities would not be um, in the conversation when the enslaved came into the room to serve food or to be a butler. That's really the realistic uh, use of a signal. A whistle. Yeah, a whistle. Yes, exactly, exactly. Not to not eat the food. Yes. Well, we could speak for hours, but there is one thing I would like to cover before we come to the end. And I would like you to tell us about your work at the Lee Mansion. <laughs> Absolutely. I just started as the director of programming, education, and, and visitor engagement at Stratford Hall. It's the home of the Lees. It's a 1738 gigantic mansion on the northern neck in Virginia in Westmoreland County. Um, it is a striking landscape. I mean, the slave quarters are still standing. It is right in the Potomac. The house is the most significant um, I've seen in Virginia. It has more square footage dedicated to cooking and to uh, dining than any other home in Virginia. And moreover, it's where Robert E. Lee was born. And, you know, this particular location, you know, speaks volumes to the history of this nation. It speaks not only to the Civil War, but to Charlottesville last year. It speaks to the hundreds of years before that, that these Lees were out there and that, you know, two of the Lee brothers signed the Declaration of Independence. And so you've got this very rich history that has everything to do with the birthing of America, um, the slave trade. They actually had a slaving ship on site where they would bring enslaved folks or they would go bring captured Africans and enslave them in Virginia right there on site. Um, They have got a a burial ground that's marked for the enslaved folks that worked there. They have got this wealth of knowledge and it is this crossroads of the birth of America, the destruction of America and the civil war and the contemporary destruction of our social fabric of this sort of ripping that we're seeing. Um, the terrors have been here forever. We're still dealing with uh, hundreds of years of enslavement and very sort of crooked race relations. But I would say in the last year, Robert E. Lee has become this sort of, um, you know, he was a statue in that case, but he's become this sort of flashpoint to where we really have to start looking at history. You know, what kind of responsibility do we have to understand these people's paths, the choices that they made uh, to accept and apologize for the fact that we enslaved millions of Africans for hundreds of years and to think about what that has done to our fabric in America in 2018. And part of my job there is to interpret the enslaved lives I'll be doing a tour, um, we're changing the tour to actually uh, incorporate the stories of the enslaved people that were very much a part of that household for hundreds of years and to bring a very complicated and important story to light. Could you say once more for our listeners the name, the town of this Lee Mansion? 
Yes, it's called Stratford Hall, S-T-R-T-F-O-R-D, and it is on the northern neck of Virginia in Westmoreland County. It's about 40 minutes east of Fredericksburg, which is right off of 95, and I highly recommend anyone that wants to see a very powerful space um, and a very important place in our nation's history to come out. Um, call me ahead of time. I will give you a special tour. I welcome anyone that wants to come down and see the stories that we have to tell there. I know that your stories are going to be the stories that we have been waiting more than a hundred years to hear. And I want to yeah. thank you so, so much for giving us a taste of your research. You did mention that you have two book uh, projects that you want to continue in the future. And I hope you will certainly do them because we want to read them. I I think we are about to run out of time. And I want to thank you once more, Kelly, for this fantastic window into the American past, a window that has been shut for far too long. Uh, Once again, Bound to the Fire, How Virginia's Enslaved Cooks Helped Invent American Cuisine, was published by the University Press of Kentucky in 2017. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me on. 